Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you like the program, don't forget to subscribe on uh, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Bing Boing, Sandblaster. Uh, I made up some of those names. And be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. Our guest today is the one and only Jay Caruso with the Washington Examiner. So let's start out. You you are new, I believe, to the Washington Examiner. We're at the Dallas Morning News and just moved over as part of a revamp there. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what's going on with the new and improved uh, Washington Examiner? Yeah, so I... Um... I was with the Dallas Morning News. I was an editorial writer in Washington Examiner Clarity Media hired Seth Mandel uh, to revamp the magazine, the Washington Examiner magazine, which they took national. Unfortunately, this created a situation where Clarity Media had two magazines, uh, the Washington Examiner magazine and the Weekly Standard. And fortunately, the Weekly Standard was deemed Somehow the corporate said that they didn't want to have two magazines, and so one had to be shut down and the other one had to take over. It was kind of an awkward situation. I have friends at the at, at the you know at both right. outlets, and um, of course I didn't know what was going to happen, but uh, it was still kind of awkward. But you know, a lot of those guys have been hired by CNN, and uh, they got the bulwark going and and some other things. So I think everybody's kind of you know kind of settled in other places. And so, you know, um, we're just kind of full steam ahead with magazine. Just the uh, fourth issue uh, is out this week. Just to clarify, it's not your fault. This is what you're saying to uh, anyone out there. No, uh, I, yeah, exactly. Anybody's going to want to send you angry emails or curse me out for, you know, killing the Weekly Standard, I have to say, you know, this is not me. Direct your anger elsewhere. Right. And I, I also noticed that shortly after you left, the Dallas Morning News, in addition, also uh, let a bunch of people go. Anyone who writes for a living, I, I never like that. But again, that also, you would say, is, you know, it's not something that you had to do. It's just a coincidence that you left and then they, you know, you're, you're not leaving a trail of destruction wherever you go. <laughs> no, that... Yeah, that was that was something that came as a surprise as well. Not only, unfortunately, not only did they lay off uh, lay people off, but the point section of the Dallas Morning News, which usually featured two editorials, cartoon letters, and three opinion columns, has now been reduced to one page. So there's one editorial, a column, and several letters, and that's about it. That's uh, kind of a uh, Kind of stinks. Well, I mean, it's it's obviously a bit of a, an anecdote that you've you're right there with two of these shakeups happening at the same time. But is this normal to see this many shakeups happening, or is, is there something interesting going on in in media in general, or maybe even conservative media? What what sort of trends are you seeing? Well, it, you know, unfortunately, um, the Dallas Morning News is owned by AHB Low, which is a publicly traded company, and so if a billionaire. You know, let's you know, let's use Jeff Bezos for example. He owns the Washington Post. If, if if the Washington Post loses money, that's still a value to him, and you know he can cover that on his own because he's you know he's so wealthy. At least he'll have some of his wealth after his divorce. Um, but but when it comes to a company like like the Dallas Morning News, it, it again it's publicly traded, so they have investors, and unfortunately, some of these decisions have to be made. I mean, you, they have to you know they had three quarters in a row of losses, you know, 17, 18%. And unfortunately, it's an industry that is 
you know, the newspaper industry is trying to make the shift into digital. Even successful news outlets in the New York Times, you know, their readership was, you know, at an all-time high several years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, and they still had to, or two years ago, they still had to let some people go. Uh, so it's, it, you know, it, it, print advertising used to be the bread and butter for the newspaper industry, and it's just not there anymore. And digital advertising doesn't pay the way it used to. And so, you know, these these industries, you know, the newspaper industry has to rely heavily now on digital subscriptions. That's what they have to go for. And unfortunately, with a more digital focus, that doesn't require as many employees. So unfortunately, you've seen you've seen these industry, you've seen these papers kind of, you know, reduce overhead and re- and, and reduce, uh, you know, the newsroom size. Do you think that's going to have a major effect on reducing investigative reporting and 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 going more towards sort of clickbait editorializing? Well, it, it, it's it's either that or you're going to see more models like uh, ProPublica or uh, the Texas Tribune, mm-hmm. uh, which are Texas Tribune relies on donations. You know, it, it and as as does ProPublica. You know, they're they're not they're not like for profit ventures. Uh, it's just a matter of are we gonna, are they going to find investors who know I'm going to give this money because I want to see good journalism. I'm not expecting. To make a profit on this, and that's and that's that's the difficulty of the of the of the news industry is you know it's it, it's going to be difficult to to invest and, and and expect to make a return. News in general, uh, or these sorts of you know mass media in general, it's sort of like one of those things that work in practice, but not necessarily in theory, or it used to work in practice. You know, that in economics, there's a thing called uh, public good, right? Which is not, it's kind of a misnomer. People think it's just like, oh, this is something that's generally good. But the idea is this is something that, you know, if you offer it to one person, you can't really exclude it from from anyone else, right? So uh, if you send something out over the radio waves, you can't actually just have people who are subscribing to that get it. Uh, and newspapers and news, especially with digital there are ways you can do paywalls and you can have subscriptions or whatever, but it's pretty it's pretty hard. People don't like it. And the way that that's traditionally been managed is you had a- advertising, right? Uh, or you had some sort of wealthy donor who was willing to lose a little bit of money. That system seems to be kind of breaking down with the internet and we haven't quite figured out a good way to, to replace it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's exactly right. The the subscription model is is difficult. Um, Heck, even I would have, you know, as like as as a Dallas Morning News employee, you know, it's like when I was when I was in the office, I could read whatever I wanted on the website. But then I actually had to subscribe at home. And yeah, if if you're within the Dallas area, you get five free articles a month. If you're in Texas, you or anywhere else outside of Dallas, you get three before the uh, inevitably you see the pop-up that says, Hey, if you want to keep reading, we need you to subscribe, you know? And I think for, you know, for, 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 you know, papers, newspapers with like a national focus, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, it's probably a little easier to get people to subscribe. It's difficult if, if, if you're somebody who is living in, in uh, Nevada and you want to read an article in the Dallas Morning News, well, you know, you're going to pay $15 a month to subscribe what is essentially a, a local newspaper. Probably not. I did want to go back to the weekly standard for just a little bit. One of the, you know, big questions that was raised when that whole thing went down was, well, you know, how much of this is like, you know, what what is the ideological significance of this? And of course, you know, the standard to the extent it had a distinctiveness among magazines historically was, you know, in the realm of, you know, it tended towards 
what was called neoconservatism or, you know, kind of a hawkish foreign policy married to democracy promotion overseas, that sort of thing. And then more recently, perhaps, you know, if there's if there's a term that gets applied to people that rankles even more than neoconservative, you know, people don't necessarily like being called neoconservative or, you know, there's all sorts of back and forth about whether that's a real thing. Uh, you know, if there's if there's a term like that, that's even more on the right, it would be never Trump, right? So, you know, Bill Kristol, Charlie Sykes, some of the folks over there, you know, very much disaffected with the current state of conservatism or the Republican Party or the Trump presidency or whatever. So what is the failure of the magazine the loss of that, you know, portend as far as that goes? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that was initially when, when that news had broken, you know, it was this kind of thing where it was, you know, people were Without without knowing, you know, people who who didn't even work there, who've never worked there, you know, of course, were pontificating about what what had happened, and that you know, you know, the Clarity Media owner was you know more in favor of Trump and didn't like what the magazine was doing, and um, you know, anybody, and even the people who work at the Weekly Standard will tell you they know that it's not, it wasn't a ideological decision that this was not a situation where they were upset with Stephen Hayes, uh, you know, that they were very critical of Trump, you know, but, but, you know, even, even the weekly standard, you know, it, certain points, you know, is there were people who were so anti-Trump, they were saying that any kind of support given to something that Trump does is in favor of Trumpism. And so people were saying, if you support Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, then you're engaging in Trumpism. Well, the Weekly Standard had an editorial that said, Brett Kavanaugh deserves confirmation. So was that Trumpism? I, did, I don't think so. From what I understand, and I'm, I'm just, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not privy to any of the, any kind of inside information other than you know, what I've been told is that this is a completely, you know, like a financial decision more than anything else. It's difficult, you know, it goes back to what we're talking about in terms of media and it's like who who's going to be out there to, to, to write the checks for this kind of thing. And, you know, I guess Clarity just didn't see a sustainable business model. And of course, you know, there are others who say, well, this happened because they wanted to relaunch the magazine. And by cutting out the Weekly Standard, they get all those subscribers, 40 thousand or whatever it was and they just keep them on there which is true in a sense but again that's all business stuff i don't really i can't really speak to that but anybody who knows me uh you know or seth mandel or a lot of the people on staff phil klein and timothy carney you know <laughs> hardly you're not trump big, you're not big trump fans yourselves yeah exactly exactly now you know you could say byron york and paul bedard probably have you know lean more towards a pro-Trump. Helen Andrews. Yeah, but exactly. But, you know, it's kind of like National Review. You see a very mixed, Mm -hmm. you know, group there as well. And I I think that's healthy. It's not, you know, this whole idea that you, if you have a, you know, a singular focus, then, then you're, you're, you're writing for a particular audience. And, and are you writing to a anti-Trump audience or a pro-Trump audience? Are you writing to a conservative audience? And that's what I think, uh, you know, you need to focus. And if something leans one, one piece re- leans towards in favor of Trump and another one is very, op- you know, opposing him, as long as the arguments are good, then, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. And uh, in fact, you are not only perhaps a little bit of a Trump skeptic, but you uh, perhaps infamously made the list of uh, so-called salon conservatives. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to pick out a scab. Uh, uh, <laughs> Actually, I thought, you know, when I, so this is uh, for listeners, Salon Magazine a while back did like a list of, you know, these are the conservative accounts that you should follow and they're, they're actually okay. And I vouch for you, Jay, some of the, some of the folks that were on that list, you're kind of like, I mean, it was like Jen Rubin or Max Boot, I think was on there. People who, you know, perhaps it, 
the way I would describe it is that at one point they were conservative, but now they, as you say, their view is that if, you know, if Trump were to come out against earthquakes, then they would be conscience bound to be pro earthquake, you know, in order to better oppose him. I don't think it's fair to, to lump you in with that. No, a perfect example would be would be the move of of the Israeli uh, embassy to to Jerusalem. Jen, Jennifer Rubin was always in favor of that, and when Trump did it, suddenly it was a horrible thing, and it was going to cause unrest and everything else. So it's just that kind of knee jerk opposition to anything that Trump is in favor of. You know, it was it was the same thing with Kavanaugh. Once Kavanaugh had that kind of like little angry outburst, all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is terrible. He's he's gone Trumpian, and his his you know we we can't do this. We you know, and it was just like, come on, you know. The guy's authored over 330 opinions when he was on the D.C. Circuit. You know, if you're concerned about his temperament, go look at the judicial, his judicial record, not when he's sitting there being accused of gang rape, which I think a lot of people might be angry about. You know, talking about somebody like Max Boot, who's was a conservative, is, is clearly moving a different direction, I believe is outspoken about leaving the Republican Party. In The Atlantic, you read an article about why you're not leaving the Republican Party. Talk a little bit about that and what you see maybe the problems are briefly, what the problems are in the Republican Party. And is there anything that can be done to fix it? That's a good question. Um, I, I, you know, part of the reason why I wrote the piece is because yeah, Max Boot and Tom Nichols and others have said that they're they're officially leaving the party, um, because you know there are people who say that Trump is a transformational figure. Like he has transformed the Republican Party into the Trump Party, whereas me and others, you know, we, we believe that he's a transitional figure. That I, I, my view is that he is the last kind of like breath of a generation, you know, boomer generation that saw like George Bush and George W. Bush and they saw Romney and they didn't like these guys because they weren't, you know, this whole fighting thing. And, and, and Trump was like that last gasp for that generation. Uh, and, and I also think, you know, the other thing I think is, is that very, you know, GOP voters are very fluid. Um, you know, let, let's, let's just say, for example, that. You know, Trump decided he wasn't going to run in 2020. And Nikki Haley became the, the nominee and went back to running on a traditional, much more traditional GOP format. I think GOP voters would line up behind her if she was the nominee, the same way they did for Trump when I think a lot of people didn't like him. The danger, I guess, if there's if there's any concern that I have is, you know, it, it, what kind of damage is going to be done by the time he leaves office and how hard is it going to be to pick up those pieces I guess we'll see after 2020 if he's if he's still there and he decides to run. Uh, how bad is his defeat? Uh, I think the drubbing that the GOP took in the House this past fall was very troubling because it marked, I think, a a moment where people in the suburbs were like, you know what, I I don't necessarily like what this guy is doing. I, I when it's interestingly enough, when you look at some of the stuff on his record, you know, his his biggest legislative achievement is a tax cut that. Pretty much any Republican president would have signed his his judicial nominations are not out of line with what anybody else would have chosen. I think the big issue, of course, is the you know the trade war, which you know which we haven't seen enough pushback on that. And then, of course, his rhetoric with respect to to immigration. Most Republicans are a little bit more accommodating with respect to immigration. He has been much more hardcore on that. I think what what is rhetoric, where his rhetoric has been the worst is kind of like attacks on institutions and, and just talking about the corruption within the Justice Department and the FBI. And yeah, that kind of thing, it, it's created, I think, a sense of distrust amongst his supporters 
that's going to be weeding that all out is going to take some time. But I still think it can be done. I think you have a newer, still a newer generation of, of Republicans and conservatives that can take over and kind of bring the party back to where it's supposed to be, hopefully. So I, I will say, uh, I always feel like I, I don't want to crush people's spirits when I when I say this, but you know, oftentimes I think people, you know, they talk about, well, you know, Trump, I mean, he'll be gone and if he if he loses, he'll be gone in 2020. Otherwise, he'll be gone in 2024. The thing is, you know, whether Trump is president or not, he's still going to be on TV, I think, uh, as long as, you know, unless he has a stroke or, or something, right? So he's not he's not going away. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know, if people think, okay, well, he'll just go away. I don't foresee that happening. I, you know, even if Nikki Haley or whoever is president, he's still going to be playing a role unless he's maybe he gets uh, exiled to the to the Mars prison camp or something. And he's still probably going to have his fans, right? You know, who other Republicans in the same way that right now they are, you know, perhaps sometimes afraid to cross him because they don't want to alienate, you know, a fan base of Trump voters who, while not a majority, they can't win without, right? You know, I, I think, you know, if Nikki Haley is president she's and Trump is out there on Fox News, she's going to be perhaps, you know, may, like she's all, I think she'll always be look or whoever will always be kind of looking over their shoulder. Well, well what, you know, what's the, what's the Trump effect going to be? And that I suspect is going to continue until you know, he goes off to his uh, eternal reward. Well, one thing I did say, and I wrote a piece in the New York Daily News that just came out the other day, is that people in the party are more, much more interested in self-preservation than anything else. And what you've seen so far is, you know, Trump has been able to maintain this kind of approval rating that is not, you know, not high. He's never, you know, outside of a Rasmussen poll here or there, he's never cracked 50%. But he's always maintained this kind of 42, 43, kind of, you know, just enough out there for the Republican Party and members of the party, people like Lindsey Graham and others, to, you know, who, who were critics at first, who now back him, you know, but I said that if that support continues to drop, if you start to see something where, you know, I talked about in, in 2004, when, when, when Bush was running for reelection, every Republican across the country who was running in a race wanted him to be out there to help, to help raise money and, and campaign with him. And four years later, they were yelling, stay away, stay away, because his approval ratings had dropped into the low 30s. And, and he was considered a, just a drag on the entire party. So if that happens with Trump and you start, he starts losing his base supporters, then you're going to see Republicans start to jump ship, in my view. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's that's what I'm I'll, I'll stick with that. Well, this is this is just an anecdote. But uh, I recall in the uh, the most recent midterms, uh, Ted Cruz, the, according to the polls I saw, had jumped to a seven point lead just before Donald Trump came to town for the uh, the big rally. And that lead obviously went way down. Do you think that I mean, I, I it's speculation about whether or not the, the MAGA rally actually affected Trump's uh, affected Cruz's numbers. But it sure seems to me that there was a there's a bit of a drag there. And if and you mentioned the suburbs. Uh, those are exactly the areas where being tied to uh, to Trump, I think, would have hurt somebody like Cruz. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you look at what happened, particularly on the Fifth Court of Appeals, every Republican lost. Every Republican justice lost. Now, of course, this is you know this is the uh, of course the uh, where you don't you don't vote for individuals; you just vote for ticket. You know, it's a you just, yeah, straight you, ticket, straight ticket voting, right? So, and that's going away. Uh, but but you have. <laughs> We, you know, we had the, we interviewed some of these judicial candidates and there were people that were just I was just like, there is no way that you should be sitting on any near any court, let alone an appeals court. And now several of these people are, are have been elected. And that was 
partially due to to the Beto effect. Beto really didn't. He ran kind of like an Obama-like campaign. You know, there was not a lot of specifics of what he talked about. You know, he was always running ads that were talking about you know people, not PACs. But it it helped in the sense that you know he had this kind of positive tone, and it wasn't this kind of angry Trumpian kind of outlook that. I think it uh, affected Ted Cruz in a certain way. And plus, I, you know, people that I spoke to, this is anecdotal, but there were just, there are a lot of people who were upset with Cruz considering how, you know, this is, you know, Trump, you know, and accused his father, accused his father <laughs> being involved in the Kennedy assassination, said awful things about his wife. He was just repeating, he was just repeating what he'd read in the newspaper about it. All right. I all, mean, there I, were yeah, news all he knows is what's on the internet. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there were a lot of people who were upset about that. I think it, I think it affected him. And I think people, you know, it's, it, it's ironic, you know, you consider better over lost in the race. He didn't lose by that much, but he still lost, but he's still going to be probably one of these top guys in the, on the Democratic ticket, largely because of that appeal that he has, and also because he can just raise a ton of money, $40 million in the last 28 days of his campaign, which is an astounding figure. So I, that's where I, like I said, you know, you saw you saw Pete Sessions, he lost, lost big. A bunch of other Republicans who we had recommended who had won previously, they lost big. I think that was the Beto effect. And I think it was also, I, I think it was this kind of rejection, in my view, of certain Republicans of, of, of the Trump effect. Well, uh, let's talk about the article that you just published published today, which is Friday, for the Washington Examiner. And you make a point that Donald Trump is, I don't want to say betting his presidency in the wall. I think the, the word you use is that he's the, the wall's defining the fight for Trump. Tell us a little bit about that article and what your what your thoughts are. Yeah. So this, this one, um, you know, this, this came at a perfect time because we were you know contemplating writing about Trump and 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 his, you know, his view on the wall and the importance that it is, the importance it has to his base support. And, and it's really more about immigration than anything else. But the wall has become like this kind of like symbolic figure of his presidency. And I kind of tied it back to, um, you know, 1988, when George H.W. Bush was running for president, and he emphatically said, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. And when he broke that promise, a lot of people were angry, people in his own party, Republicans, you know, whether you I don't know whether or not it actually cost him the election, but it certainly didn't help him especially amongst, you know, base Republican voters. For Trump, the whole Mexico is going to build it. You talk to any Trump supporter, like, we don't care who builds it, who pays for it, just as long as it gets done. And this is a this is a promise that he has made over and over and over again. And now with the shutdown, he's kind of dug in. If he gives in on this, this will be the one issue, because we saw what Ann Coulter said and what Rush Limbaugh said. It's like, if he gives in on this one, then what else is he going to do over the next two years? Now, granted, the five point six billion or five point seven billion, whatever it is that he wants, it, you know, it's not even going to, you know, it, it it just became like I said, you know, what I said, it became a holy grail for the president, and you know, and then the Democrats, you know, in the same by the same token, they're like, it's stop at all costs, we're not going to pay for any of it, uh, even though you go back to two thousand and thirteen, and they were paying for it, and when Bush was president, they were paying for, it. you know, this whole walls are immoral kind of thing is just, you know, tripe. Uh, from the Democrats. Yeah, I, I've been to the border. This is this is one of the weird things about this is you know I've been to the border, and there was a wall there. <laughs> you know, it wasn't it? Not even a fence, right? There's a wall. Now, granted, you know it's not. You, you go to different parts of the border. There's definitely places where there's either a scraggly little wire fence or nothing at all. But you know, I think there's something like 650 miles of 
barrier already. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean that this is kind of a kind of a a weird thing. The, the you know the the other weird thing about this to me, you know, it's not so much that there's a that Trump is doing a shutdown over the wall or or, or whatever, but that he seems you know because I, I agree with you the the wall seems to be like if there was one thing that he seemed to be kind of wedded to it was that but the the weird thing is that he seemed to have kind of forgotten till the very last minute because you know all throughout the last two years when you had Republican control didn't really seem to be a priority even when the administration submitted its budget request I think they asked for 1.6 billion in wall funding which they got right. Uh, and it was only at the last minute that Trump kind of woke up and said, oh, yeah, no, 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 I want I want five point seven billion. I was going to say in football terms, I think they call this poor clock management. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I mean, maybe for all I know, if he had asked for five point seven billion originally, you know, Paul Ryan probably would have given it to him and they would have they would have either they would have got it or we would be in a situation where you could more clearly say, I don't know, I don't, I actually, I don't even know if the Senate would be able to, if like the Democrats would be able to stop the budget because you have a majority, but assuming somehow they were, you could say, well, you know, they're the ones that are objecting to having this, this funding. Uh, So that's, that's the kind of weird thing is not that he places so much importance on the wall, but that he kind of didn't place that much importance on the wall, given how central it is to his message. Right, and and, and he rejected several several proposals where he could have gotten the wall funding. Uh, right. Kevin Brady and Paul Ryan, you know, in the tax bill, they had had, had suggested a border adjustment tax. Uh, it, it it was you know it, would it have been very good policy? I don't know, but it, Trump it could have given him the victory that he wanted. He could he could have argued in a sense more so than the new trade deal that hey uh, we have this border adjustment tax so we're building the wall and Mexico is going to pay for it and then there was the other deal that was that was getting floated which uh, might have which could have given Trump the entire 25 billion that he was looking for in exchange for uh, you know creating a pathway to citizenship for for DACA recipients. And he was amenable to that, I guess, until Steve Miller whispered in his ear, and then he threatened a veto, and that went away. Uh, as far as Republicans in Congress, you're right. I mean, they didn't seem to treat this the, the wall funding with much, you know, with with much urgency. Uh, and you know, considering now with the shutdown, you know, as it stands right now, Republicans are using Democrats as a foil for arguing, you know, hey, we need this wall funding that they didn't care about two months ago. So it's this kind of you have this, and, and the other thing in my piece that I wrote about was the Democrats is they have this very now loud progressive caucus. It's like their own little Tea Party that that has gotten elected in this in this wave, who are would just be adamantly opposed to even you know a compromise or for half. So you have you have both sides who don't you know who have really no incentive to give in, and at the same time if they do, um, it could could hurt them politically within their own party and with their own voters. So there's no end in sight. Yeah. I, it's going to be, you know, I, this is one of those ones where anybody I've, I have talked to said, I have no idea. I have no idea when this is going to end. Yeah. You you figure uh, at some point between now and the 2020 election, uh, the government will reopen, but uh, may, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> well, I maybe, maybe future history books 
Yeah. We'll look back and be like, yeah, this is actually, this was the point where, uh, you know, the government was reduced to essential services only because, you know, they were never able to, to pass a budget resolution again. Yeah. Well, I, I'd say that once people really start getting affected, you know, in terms of like flying and, and you know, things where it affects the people who aren't just not the, the workers who aren't getting paid and, you know, and, I, and I feel for those work. I, I I kind of like reject the the hardcore conservative slash liberal. Oh, it's just a vacation. They're going to get their money back. Well, you know, if they're going to get their money back. But if you need your rent money now, getting it a month from now is not going to help you. Um, so I, you know, I kind of reject that. And it, you know, it, it's tough. You, you figure, but this is the. And I think it was Arthur Brooks who talked about this, who said, you know, we're governed by the extremes. You have this kind of. 15% on the right, 15% on the left. And they're the ones that, you know, are the loudest and the most boisterous. And it's this kind of 70% in the middle who are the, the, the bigger majority who are not, you know, it, it, you have that 15% on either end basically controlling the agenda. So we're recording this on Friday afternoon. And we just had this story break yesterday, this BuzzFeed story saying that President Trump is uh uh, suborn perjury asking Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. Tim Carney this afternoon tweeted out, so what's going to be the uh, the data dump this afternoon? Uh, while we're all thinking about this BuzzFeed story, something else is uh, going to get disclosed probably at the end of the day, probably about an hour or two after we're done recording. Do you have any uh, any thoughts on what that news might be? Oh, <laughs> I mean, if there's aliens. One, I was having a conversation with my son last night and I said, Trump has been president for about two years and it feels like 10. It's like it is, it, with him in the news cycle, it is just exhausting. And yeah, I mean, who knows what's going to get dumped on on this? But of course, th- you know that one got thrown out there at ten o'clock on Thursday night, and people were just going out of their minds over it. And it's just kind of like you know, let's step back, let's wait and see. You know, BuzzFeed has had some issues in the past, and uh, one of the reporters, Jason Leopold, people may not know the name, but if everybody remembers, he was he was a reporter who said back, I think in 2005, that multiple sources told him that Karl Rove was going to be indicted, and the Valerie Plame affair never happened. Um, and, you know, he's since done, I think he's done some really good reporting for BuzzFeed. Before that, I think he was with Vice, you know, but it, it, it's still the... the you know, I don't dismiss the story because it's based on anonymous sources the way some people have. Um, but I'm, I said it would be skeptical of it because they apparently or reportedly did not see any of this evidence. Their law enforcement officials told them there are emails and text messages and things of that nature. Um, so I, I don't know. But as far as what might drop to, to top that here in the next couple hours, I couldn't tell you. Well, what's the fun in not speculating? <laughs> I don't. That's the whole thing. It's like there's there's a there's a there's a, a cornucopia of stuff that we could sit there and say <laughs> is going to happen. It's like it's hard. To, there's so many choices. It's hard to say. It's hard to pick one. You know, one thing that I like to do uh, periodically is go back and listen to podcasts from a couple months ago or even a year ago or whatever. Just, you know, because it, it, I think it helps uh, give me a perspective on how much, you know, people really just have no idea what's going to happen, <laughs> you know, because you go back and people are, you know, talking about, you you know, the listener now that uh, in a week or two or a month after they're talking, you know, some big thing is going to happen and upend everything and, and they have no idea and to the extent that they offer predictions about the future, it's all all off or whatnot. Um, although if you were to go back, I think, and listen to episodes of the Urbane Cowboys, which you should do, I think we have a pretty good track record. So I'm just going to say that you should go back and check. But 
it's it's particularly odd with with this sort of thing, you know, with all the the Mueller and other stuff, because it's it's a little bit like, you know, you're going to go see a movie and you're listening, you know, while you're waiting for the the show to start, you're listening to the next theater to try and get some hints of what's going to happen in the movie. Eventually, there's going to be like anything big, whether it's this Cohen thing or other stuff, it's going to come out. If the federal investigators know about it, or it's going to be in Mueller's report, or or, or is it Mueller or Mueller? It's Mueller. Mueller. Yeah. It's, uh, the, in Austin, the airport in Austin used to be Robert Mueller Airport, spelled the same way. I believe it's they are unrelated individuals, but for that reason, it's always I've always been I get confused. But anyway, my point is there's all this speculation and theorizing for stuff that we really can't know right now. And we know we're going to know eventually, you know, it's not like, you know, in some cases you could say, well, all all the sleuthing might uncover something that otherwise wouldn't have been uncovered. Right. But in this case, these scoops are all coming from official sources that are in the process of investigating things and they're going to come out with it once they're done. It's the nature, you know, this is the nature of journalism, I guess you can't, you can't help yourself. Yeah. (laughs) We know now. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I've, been one to sit there and say, look, let's, let's just wait for the Mueller report to come out. Um, it, it, you know, I don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of these, you know, and, and, and somebody said, oh, this is Mueller's team leaking and say, well, you don't actually know. They just say the law enforcement officials, you know, they didn't specify. It could be, you know, somebody who works for the FBI who was assisting with the Mueller investigation. And I think, I think the Mueller team has been pretty, pretty good at keeping stuff under wraps. Uh, because they would they drop some news or indictments or something like that and you know catch the media by surprise and stuff just did not get out yeah it would be weird like it would almost in my view if it if it was the Mueller team leaking then you have to ask well why are they leaking this when they didn't leak other stuff it's any sort of spy versus spy type thing which you have on this you really my brain is just not capable of untwisting all the possible you know yeah no I, maybe, I agree with that yeah maybe it's a double reverse you know they're leaking it to to smoke them out. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. If this is, the, you know, if this actually happened and you have this kind of bombshell and they've got the proof to like, to show that yes, Trump actually ordered Cohen to lie to Congress. It, it seems odd that it would be something that they would leak when that would, if that was in the report before it got to the news media, it would hit like a, you know, an atomic bomb. Right. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. If there's some kind of, like you said, there's some kind of game going on, but it's kind of like to try and figure it out. It's just a little bit too much. Well, you know, Josiah used to always ask a question. He hasn't asked anybody this question for a while. Is there a uh, particular movie that uh, that about journalism that you uh, that that you identify with? You know, it's funny. I you know, there's there's plenty of journalism movies, and you know, everybody everybody talks about um, you know all the president's men. But I I think and I and I, I was actually able to interview on a podcast one of one of the spotlight reporters. So spotlight is is really a terrific movie because it ironically didn't really it didn't dramatize a lot of things. Um, you know, in 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 all the president's men, you know, the, the deep throat told me, your lives are in danger. You know, Bob Woodward was like, no, we never we were never told our lives were in danger. That never happened. In spotlight, you know, essentially they break this case by finding old. Catholic directories in a basement somewhere and figure out that, you know, when it says uh, sick leave is when, you know, these 
these were priests that were, you know, molesting kids and they were taking them out of, you know, the parishes during those times. Um, it was, it was kind of like this, it was a lot of meticulous kind of digging in, reporting, interviewing, things of that nature, which I found pretty fascinating. And, you know, when I talked with, we talked with Mike Resendiz, who was one of the reporters, you know, he was a very strong advocate of this is this where it comes back to local journalism. We, we, you know, when I was at the Dallas Morning News, we had a, a good team of investigative reporters that broke a lot of good stories, uh, local stories. You know, working at a kind of local newspaper uh, for 18 months, it, it, you kind of saw that. And people who live in those areas are very interested in that stuff. Once again, that goes back to the financial model, how you do it. But in that respect, Spotlight kind of hit home with that because of the local journalism angle. You know, this wasn't a situation where they were trying to cover a big national story, blew up into a national story, but it was it was essentially local at first. And so, um, you know, that one is, is probably one of my favorites. 